and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira. Hello, I'm Sean Edry. The plastic tips at the end of shoelaces are called aglets. Their true purpose is sinister. Wait, wait, that's from a TV show. You're yes, quoting. You're quoting from the Justice League Unlimited TV it show. It counts. It doesn't. The question. Uh, this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaport, the best online and unusual source for comic books and pop culture news, reviews, and previews. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. For example, speaking of the question, Greg Carpenter has an article called The Nostalgia Test, re-examining Denny O'Neill, Dennis Cowens, and Rick Maguire's The Question. That was the epic Vertigo run of the 1980s. Okay, and if you like that, if you like this podcast, you should probably contribute. Contribute to Sequent via Patreon. Yes, support smart criticism in comics. Well, shall we go on to the news? Yes. Apparently all hell has broken loose in Hollywood. Dogs and cats living together, just like, you know, Kermit and his piggy broke up. Oh my god, have they approved the Cat vs. Dog sequels? That's probably coming too. I don't oh. know. Kevin James still has a career. And on top of all that, we have just learned that there's been a bit of a shake-up at Marvel Studios. Uh, Marvel Studios president Kevin Feige has pulled up from Marvel Comics. Up until now, the Marvel movies have been under the banner of Marvel Comics, and so under the thumb of one... Ike Perlmutter. One. Also known as the real-life C. Montgomery Burns. So they say. And so, by agreement with Disney, uh, Feige is now uh, running the Marvel film division by himself. Well, he does report well, directly to... To Bob Iger. Yeah, to Al Bob Iger. Uh, but it does represent sort of a much larger degree of freedom that's being given to Feige and taken away from Perlmutter. Perlmutter still has the run over their TV stuff, their anime, their animated stuff, their computer game division. But the big, big, big movies are now a thing by themselves. And this is probably the beginning of a process because my guess is if the movies can prove that they can do well without Perlmutter, the TV division might also sort of squirm out from under him. You never know. Yeah, well, apparently, and it's again, it's all according to rumors and second-end and people talking over the whatever. Perlmutter is not the easiest guy to work with. No. And Feige is a regular corporate boss, which means... He's not Smithers. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he wants, you know, Feige wants your money. Uh, Perlmutter apparently wants your money and your life and probably your soul, <laughs> your mortal soul. I mean, and he's very hard to work under. One of the major things that came out against Perlmutter during this whole contentious period was the fact that, for example, the lack of Black Widow merchandising was attributed to him. He belongs, and again, it's not really something that I would. It's not malicious. He just belongs to a certain generation of people who believe that. You know, marketing should be directed towards... Yeah, there's boys' toys and there's girls' toys. Exactly. And Marvel is a boy toy division. According to Perlmutter. Yeah, he he owned Toy Bees, which bought bought the rights for Marvel during the 90s near crap. You know, he's old. He's old money. And that's his perspective. And I think that this power move that, that Peggy has done demonstrates that maybe that's not the mindset they want going forward. Now... This isn't, you know, it's not going to be all roses and sunshine, and I wouldn't expect Marvels to just suddenly become uh, the progressive spearhead <laughs> in main, mainstream American culture. This, we don't know what this is. We don't know what Kevin Feige unleashed, as it were, means. Well, we have seen one particular consequence of that uh, uh, so far, which is that 
Marvel's creative committee, I put creative in quotation marks even though you can't tell, the House of Ideas, the House of Bad Ideas has disbanded. This was a group that oversaw the development of the MCU films up to, I think, Doctor Strange. That was the last one that they oversaw. And it included figures who are prominent at Marvel Comics, such as Dan Buffy, the publisher, Joe Quesada, their chief creative officer for our sins, and Brian Michael Bendis, because clearly we haven't suffered enough. And this group is no longer involved in direct supervision of the films. Now, there are two ways to really look at this. If we're being optimistic, we can say, you know, this is a group of people who have a very, very, very specific perception of what Marvel superhero stories should be, yes. right? Bendis has a very specific style. Quesada has a very specific ideology. Buckley is usually hands-off with the comics. He's not Bill Jemis. But, you know, these are people who have very specific points of view. And they have run roughshod over Marvel Comics for the last decade, and, and you wouldn't say that Marvel is in the best state right now. So if we want to take the optimistic view, we can say not conforming to this committee anymore could be a good thing. It might be an opportunity for different perspectives and fresher points of view to come in and influence the movies. Maybe we'll have more movies like Black Panther and Ms. Marvel if someone like Sanamanat was sitting on the committee. Then again, right? we could have just d these guys being replaced by suits, by other business people who are coming with their business perspective and their wallets and their notebooks and like, well, what will make more money is a right. BCD. And that would be the end of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Well, I don't think it would, that would be the take end. Back. No, because I think one of the major factors in the success of the Cinematic Universe so far has been the fact that they are being created and produced and supervised by people who, at the very least, they may not be experts, they may not be like comic book nerds, but they have some kind of basic understanding of what people want to see and why they want to see it. They understand... Okay. To put suits in there, it, it could go the way of... Well, we'll be going back to Ghost Rider. Yeah. Uh, the problem with something like the Fantastic Four movie mm. is that the people who made it had no idea, okay, why is this popular? Why is this good? What's good about the Fantastic Four? They bought it because it was an icon, because it had a name, but... Once they bought it, they had no idea what to do with it. What, right. what are we holding this thing? You know, these guys, they turn into planes, they stretch. That's weird. Every single decision that was made with the Fantastic Four movie, and I can never say this enough, demonstrate that they had no idea what they were yeah, doing. Yeah, and the Marvel movies are, okay, we have this thing. We have Iron Man. We have Captain America. We have Thor. What's good about it? What makes it work? How can we make it work as it is as a movie? Not how can we jetson anything, that, anything about it and make it into a movie? Something completely different. Right. What does our marketing research tell us that boys age 12 to 16 want to watch? That never leads anywhere good. Foxes Avengers, that's a scary thought. It'll, it could happen. I yes. mean, that's sort of... That's Warner the Brothers Guardians view. of the Galaxy. That's the pessimistic view, right? That if this committee disperses, it, they will be replaced by people who don't have any kind of understanding of why these properties are successful. Now, the flip side of that being that, according to the latest reports, this committee was the cause of the split with Edgar Wright. Supposedly, they were they picked one nit too many, apparently. Well, supposedly, maybe, I don't know. Dealing with rumors, I don't know. So, we'll looking, have to see. Uh, looking for the to, future. Yes. According to the, to the reviews, 
we will only begin to see the influence of this shakeup after Doctor Strange. I forget which movie comes after that. I, uh, Black Panther, maybe? I think Captain it might Marvel? be Thor. It might be Thor, actually. Thor 3? Ragnarok. Yeah. Uh, that will be the point where we'll start seeing it. Hopefully it won't be the end. Ragnarok won't be the end. Oh, we should hope not. <laughs> Although, like I've always said, if they want to do female Thor, somebody call up Gwendolyn Christie and get working on it. She's there. Somebody save her from Game of Thrones and let's get to business. Okay, what's next? Now, speaking of shakeups, Marvel Comics have had a bit of a, uh, well, how can I put this best? You remember Robin Williams' old Adam and Eve skit where he says, you know, Adam must have told Eve, back up, I don't know how big this thing gets. Okay. So this was apparently Axel Alonso's quote because Secret Wars has been expanded for another issue. Yep. Now, I say expanded, that's actually a lie. Yeah, it, sh- sh- some bits of issues 7 and 8 were shaved off, mm-hmm. the page numbers have gone down, and suddenly an issue 9 sprang forth from the creative loins of Jonathan Hickman. I don't know why Axel Alonso went on comic book resources and said we didn't know how long we needed event to run. That's not a, like that's not something you ever no, want to no, hear no, no, from no. an editor. And they're talking about a Jonathan Hickman comics. Famously meticulous, famously chart obsessed, probably has everything pinned down to the to the panel of the page of the you know, everything had to be prepared years in advance, Jonathan Hickman and oh 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 no we didn't notice. Oh they knew. This is a blatant cash grab. Blatant cash grab, and I am so glad that I'm not reading Secret Wars because that is exactly the kind of thing I don't want to participate in. And shame on Marvel. That's that's yeah, for our uh, panel that that you refuse to give us that corner, right? Oh, Marvel, because there you go. That's perfect material. Yeah. However, yes, a bit of bright news. Ms. Marvel wanted the Hugo's. Well, bright news admits despair. Now, the Yugos... The... We kind of have to talk about the Yugos now, don't we? <laughs> well, we have to mention it. The Yugo is, uh, well, technically worldwide, mostly American and Western science fiction fantasy award for the general audience. And one of their categories is Best Comic Book. And the Yugos this year, 2015, well, 2014 stuff technically, has been a huge, huge controversy because a bunch of mostly right-wing extra-conservative authors and fans mm-hmm. led a slate of votes for specific stuff, stuff which was their stuff, either stuff that is politically fitting to them or stuff that is created by these authors or their friends. There was a huge, huge backlash by the regular Hugo fans, which drove out in, in great big numbers to vote no awards to five categories. Mm-hmm. Up until now, as far as I know, there have been Five no awards for any category during the entire history of the Yugo. Right. As of this year, there are ten. That's a backlash against these people. And it sort of amusingly and everybody's their point. Of who? Of people who began the backlash against the quote-unquote sad puppies. Yes. Is what they call themselves. Sad and rapid puppies. So, you know, the sad puppies were saying how they're... The Yugo drifted from popular consensus, yes. and they represent true fans, and then all the well, true fans came and said, well... There's your popular consensus right there. Well, they haven't Ms. given... Ms. Marvel wins a Yugo. Yeah, well, the comic award was... The comic category was one of the ones that wasn't tarnished. There was only one puppy contender 
throughout it. I think Zombie Nation webcomic or something like that. Mm-hmm. That sounds about right. So, but, you know, everybody said, whoever wins the Yugo this year, there's an asterisk next to his name. You know, whether good or bad, he wandering this year. Right. Which is a bit of a shame. Now, to say the truth, I don't really care about the Yugo's comic book award because... It's a very strange award that went for like... We have the Eisners. We no, yeah, the no it's, it's almost like an afterthought for them. I think for five years running, it went for that Girl Genius webcomic. Five yeah, years yeah. running. I was not a fan of that. No, and, you know, it's okay. You know, some people like it, but it won over and over again. And why? Because it was the thing that the Yugo voters read. And they're not comic book fans. They're science fiction book fans. Some of them also read comics. So, you know, that's that. So, but you know, congratulations it's, it's to Ms. Marvel. Exactly. Yeah. Congratulations to Jimmy Wilson. Another prize. Yeah, I belt. personally was in favor of Red Queens, but, you know, you can't win. Was Red right. Queens a nominee? Yes. It was Red Queens, one. Sex Criminals, Saga Volume 3, and The Zombie Nation. Oh. Yeah. Ms. Marvel or Rat Queens? You're putting me in a difficult yeah, position. Yeah, I, I don't know who Well, I'm you got to decide. The votes have been cast. Yeah. You, you know, can that's... nominate for next year if you want. Oh, I'm not going anywhere near that snake pit. <laughs> but... So congratulations to G. Willow Wilson and her team. Moving on to TV news, there have been quite a few, just like this series of casting announcements, one after the other. But let's start with the big news, which is that after the delay last season, ABC has now officially ordered the Mockingbird pilot. This is a spin-off to Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. starring, is it Adrian Kalicki? Yes. As uh, Bobby Morse. Bobby Morse. Who we'll be discussing later in the podcast. Speaking as someone who stopped watching Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. quite a while ago, I do know sort of tangentially that she is one of the more popular additions to the show. I'm still bitter that they killed off Lucy Lawless, so I don't care what well, they Well, I, I stopped watching towards the end of season one, so I really have... I know that she's popular because she actually hits stuff. So it's an action show and she's actually allowed to hit people right. during the action scene. Will you be watching the first episode? No, I don't care about S.H.I.E.L.D. I just don't. See, neither do I, but I feel like whenever there is a spin-off of that show, there's always the chance... Whenever. There's been one. And it was pretty good. Okay. Now, granted, Agent Carter was a very specific type of show, right? And it could distance itself from the parent because it was Mm -hmm. set tens and dozens of years ago. Now, if Mockingbird does the same thing, it could conceivably work. I don't know if she's lead material, I'll be honest. I know her mostly from, I've seen her on Smallville, and she was supposed to be Wonder Woman on that show that was canceled where she was running around. Yeah, yeah, the David E. Kelly version. Woo! (laughs) The less said of that, the better. Um, So, we'll Well, have to see. It's interesting that Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. has now spun off into two female-led superhero shows. Well, at least it's good for something. At least it's good for something. So, casting news. Let's just take these in order of the show. <laughs> Some of them will be a surprise to me because I haven't read the news for quite a while and Sean is about to try okay. to shock me. I have a drink in my head. Let's see if he can make me spit it out. Don't spit take with red wine. What's wrong with you? Okay, so, news item number one. Homeboy, Ido Goldberg, has been cast in a dual role for Supergirl. He's playing T.O. Morrow and Red Tornado. I have no idea who either is a Either of these are. Tio Morrow in the comic is the creator of the Red Tornado Android. So he obviously so in the show he probably modeled that after himself. Which makes sense, casting wise. The Red Tornado 
is a robot who makes wind. Who makes wind? <laughs> not like that. Okay. That's not South Park superhero. I should hope not. Okay. Well, that's... well, there, there's a strange continuity thing in the comic book which had he he had a wind elemental trapped in his chest and that they used it to power him. I assume in as the TV does. Yeah, I assume in the TV show he he will just be a robot that creates. Does he have a connection to Supergirl canonically? There weren't some teams together, I assume. Next up, he, he's, he's the Justice League member that you use when you want to kill someone up because he's a robot, so they can always rebuild him. So oh, he's the guy who gets blown up. I see how this is. Yeah, yeah, it's like right. you know the vision. Like the, the robot on Middleman. What was his name? Her name. I don't remember her name. Um, Sorry. The Middleman was in. I, I really like that show, but I can't remember her. You know the robot. Herda. Herda. No, not no. Something like that. Something like that. She was. Hilarious, yeah. but they had that thing where so, yeah. she blew up, another one would show up. Okay, uh, moving on to the Flash. Tony Todd has been cast as the voice of Zoom for season two of the Flash. Just the voice. Just the voice, which I'm not sure what that means exactly. Could this be some kind of Dark Vader thing? Uh, I mean, uh, it's Tony well, Todd. His voice will send chills down your spine. Yeah, he's a huge guy. Mm. He's a, well. Probably can't cast him as a speed star right now. You know, he's too, because you think of these guys as you know, tiny, very athletic-looking dudes, and like I said, Tony Todd is the size of a mountain. That would be true, but then you also consider that, for example, Teddy Sears isn't like slim, right? Mm-hmm. He, he and he's older, so maybe this is Zoom from Earth too. Maybe it's just computer-generated effects. That could no. Uh, also, another speedster joining. Violet Bean, this is one of her first roles, will be playing Jesse Quick. Now, that's, that's obscure. That's strange. Well, it's not that obscure Flash Legacy, but it's strange that they're bringing all of these characters in. I'm surprised. I'm not. At I, this point, the Flash TV show is more comic booky than the Flash comics. But I think that that might have been what they were aiming for all along, to do the Flash family. Because now we have Wally West coming in. We have Zoom, we have Jesse Quick, we had Eobard Thun, we have Jay Garrick. All they need is Max Mercury to show up. And, and Impulse. And, oh god, Impulse would be so cute. Because they could really cast like... And maybe they could finally reprint Impulse by Mark Wade. That would be nice. Yes, hello! That. Or at least release it digitally in like higher Well, quality. it's on Comixology right now. All of it? Yeah, because there was a DC Back to School sale and... Oh. There was at least a large chunk of Impulse. I mean, Impulse is one of those characters... I think that Peter David might have used him better in as Young comic Justice. relief in Young Justice. Another thing that's not reprinted for some... Yeah. Unknown, even during the TV show Young Justice, which was basically DC shouting, give us your money, young people, they didn't reprint Young Justice. I wonder if they didn't, re- they didn't reprint it because of... It's a very 90s book. And I think, like, particularly... Oh, no, Super no, Boy, not... not. Not with 90s. that hair, with the like the shaved head and, and all okay, that. Okay, okay. It's when very you, 90s. No, no, but when you say very 90s, people think of specific things. They think Spawn, they think Rob Liefeld. It's not that kind of 90s. It's not that. It's not that only because Peter David was poking fun of it. I remember like the first villain in Young Justice. Mighty Endowed. Mighty Endowed. Nina the wo- Dowd. The woman who couldn't stand up for two particular because reasons. Because her powers gave her an Two particular Exactly. Yes. A PG-13 podcast, <laughs> as it were. So, um, yeah, I think, like, if this show does go in the direction of the Flash family, as it were, there are two adv- immediate advantages that come to mind. The first being 
you'll have a much stronger supporting cast. Because so far, the supporting cast on, on Flash has been great, but it hasn't been... It's sort of fell, fallen into this pattern of, you know, you meet a metahuman, you either lock them up or they die or, or something like that. There's no supporting cast of superheroes mm-hmm. then because this is the hero at the start of his journey. If they go the Flash family, you'll have that. Another possibility is they could eventually kill off Barry. Yes. If you have Wally West running around and you have Impulse and you have Jesse Quick. It's the Doctor Who way of, you know, if we want to replace the lead guy, we can do it. We could have a new Flash by Season 3, 4, and that would be a way to keep it fresh in a way that, for example, Smallville couldn't. Because Smallville had, like, the same supporting cast for most of its run. And you can't kill Clock Cat. You can't. You can't replace him either. So. Well, Smallville did a good effort in killing my interest in Clark. Right. right? That, I think it did for everybody. I think at that point it was just like, oh god, another season. And then they, when they announced that it was coming to comics, everyone was like, no. No, you've got nothing for us. Okay. Finally, uh, we started getting some news at long last on Netflix's Luke Cage series. So we already knew that Rosario Dawson was coming back as Claire Temple. She's going to be this character who appears in all the Netflix series. Theo Rossi from Sons of Anarchy will be playing a villain, as will Alfre Woodard. These are pretty impressive names. I wonder who they will play, because the Luke Cage rogue gallery is unimpressive, to no, say the I, least. What they've Anger said, the Screamer, I, I, no, Mr. I Fish. I they're going for Diamondback, for, the, for Theo Rossi, who is like... Diamondback is a Captain America villain. I think he might have also been... Or am I thinking she, someone she. else? No, Diamond Beck is from the Serpent Society. She was the... Okay, so maybe Copperhead, and I think he was... Also Serpent Society. These, these there, are was, no, there was someone... This is basically the show admitting, we're not... We have nothing to do with Luke Cage villains. <laughs> we'll, we'll import from someone else. Well, listen. They, they do have a What's lot the of... What's the Nova villains doing these days? Oh, boy. They do have a lot of freedom, I think, because of Luke Cage's like problematic canon. Um... The villain that was involved in his origin story. I think that's Theo Rossi's character. I, I don't know who that is. I think it was just some prison board. No, no. He had a, a, a code name. He was a supervillain. I just, I'm blanking I out know. on it completely. But in any, in Copperhead or something like that. In any event, uh, Alfred Woodard, it's been suggested she might be playing Black Mariah. Hmm. Which okay. could be an interesting direction. I've never seen her as a villain. But I think she could definitely pull it off. Most significantly, though... This was announced only yesterday. Simone Missick will be playing Misty Knight. Who is Simone Missick? Not a particularly well-known actress. I was more excited, to be honest, by the mention of Misty Knight. Because she... Admittedly, Misty Knight is one of those characters, like Mockingbird, I think, and like a lot of characters who are going to be turning up in these Netflix series... They're not even B-lists. Like, we could be charitable and call They're them They're the supporting characters for B-list characters. Right, they've never been able to find books that could support them long-term. However, what Misty Knight represents is the exciting thing, because as far as I can remember, she starts out as Luke Cage's love interest, and then I think she either marries Danny Rand, or yes. she has a kid with him. This was from Brubaker's Iron Fist, which I think was retconned. I don't know what's going on with that right Well, now. during the last Secret Wars, Secret Love thing, she had child with Danny Rand. Okay. But the canonity of that is God knows what. Lord only knows. But what this does mean is that she might also then move on to, I mean, this would basically be the first character we know well, is appearing in Iron Fist because there still has been no Well, if it's there. popular enough, we could have a Daughters of the Dragon TV show. That would be amazing. I There was a, I think, Jimmy Palmiotta miniseries, which was, you know, it was pretty fun. 
sexploitation series, let's right. be honest what it was. They need to cast Colleen Wing, too. Yes. Which they haven't done yet, but I think if they are going for the Daughters of the Dragon... See, that's the interesting thing. There's so much here that could contribute also to post-Defenders, right? Because the Defenders series is where the leads of the four Netflix shows team up. But what they've said, for example, is afterwards, you could do Daughters of the Dragon. There's been discussion of having a Punisher Netflix series. Because if they're bringing in the Punisher for season two of Daredevil, they might as well, right? Yeah. It could go a lot of different ways, and I'm very interested to see what comes next. And that is about it for the uh, TV movie casting news department. There's one other item of interest in terms of film, but it hasn't been officially confirmed. Well, uh, Man of Steel 2 is apparently in indefinite hold. Right. The, I don't know what that means. Well, it means... There was discussion of George it's, Miller after uh, period. Well, it means that if Batman v Superman is a huge success, of course Superman 2 was never on hold. What are you talking about? And if Batman v Superman 2 is a big bust, well, we never meant to do Man of Steel 2. What the hell are you talking about? I was never here. I never even talked to you, podcaster. So you think that this demonstrates a lack of confidence on their part? Yeah. It's someone hedging their bets. Based on what, though? Because financially the movie was well, it, a success it's, it's relative well, to its... Well, it, it was a success, but in modern Hollywood, apparently, you either win all of the money or you win none of it. Mm. So I remember when after... you play the Game of Thrones, you win or you die. Yes. I remember <laughs> after Jurassic World became the most successful movie of the year, people started crying about, oh, how Marvel is losing. And I was, how are they losing? Because, someone, because apparently if someone else is earning more, then you've lost. It's not... You've... Both of you won a ton of money. It's either one of you won, one of you lost. That's I mean, I'm pretty sure that if you round up the income of all the Jurassic well, movies, it wouldn't equal. No, no, no. But I no, but it doesn't matter. No, no. The Jurassic World is bigger. Is the biggest movie of the year apparently bigger than Avengers? The first one. Yes. No, but I mean at the end of its run. Even then. Oh. It's huge. It's surprisingly okay. huge. But what I'm saying is, there's this idea that. You have to be super successful. You have to be the most successful guy in the room in Hollywood, or you're not. Which is but in odd, terms of, but this is how business people think. That I understand, but it's sort of weird that they are willing to play Schrodinger's games with the lineup of their film universe. Like They don't know if this movie is going to be good. Maybe it's them recognizing that Superman is the weakest link, even though he's their starting point. And I mean, contractually, does that mean they're keeping Henry Cavill like on a leash for the rest of his life? What you're, doing, you're doing Justice League movies from now on, Henry Cavill. You're, you're, Justice League is successful. Yeah, you're guest starring in Batman Forever. Not in Batman Forever. In Batman, Batman Forever. <laughs> Batman Forever. Retroactively, we shall insert it. They're in remaking Batman Forever. Somebody called. Have you seen The Man from Uncle? No, I haven't, but it's, I have heard positive things about it. Well, it's it. not a great movie. It's basically disposable fun. Henry Kivel is a lot better as an emotionless psychopath because yeah. this is what he's playing there. He's playing a secret agent with absolutely no scruples whatsoever. He's a lot better there than as the symbol of hope and humanity. I mean, have you ever seen him in The Two Doors? No. Okay, he was. He has a lot more life to him when he's playing roles that don't require him to be like immortals, for example. He was playing Perseus, I think. One of those SU's names. And he's just like this. Yeah, for because characters like Superman are actually very, very tricky to cast because you need someone who can say all of these lines about humanity and hope and salvation mm. and sound honest. You need a Christopher Reeve. You need a. Yeah. 
Not presentable. Well, Brendan uh, Routh. Brendan Routh, I think, had that sort of sincerity. Cavill... No, it just doesn't work. And it's so strange to hear that, because then you see him in these other roles where all of a sudden, like, he... There's life in his eyes. Well, but the life is because he's playing someone who's at least a bit of a bastard. Which, maybe that's where... Yeah, that's what suits him. So maybe you need to do a Silver Age Superman that kind of would play tricks on everybody else? Now now I'm wondering, though, if they should have switched the casting and made Superman Ben Affleck. No! And Batman Henry Cavill. Superman from Jersey? No. No, no, from Boston. I don't know. Well, that would at least be different. It would at least be something you haven't seen before. <laughs> because, you see, I could see Henry Cavill playing the Gods and Monsters version of Superman. Oh my god, that would be amazing, that, except he's not... Would, would that matter, though, if he wasn't... Because if they said, well, he's... He's all... not Latin American. Oh, right. But then, is he supposed to be? In the animated movie, he was. In the animated movie, he... He had dark... He had of... the accent, and he had the dark look yes. because of Zod, but he wasn't racially... Latin American, because Zod was his father. Because he's Krypton guy. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's getting into some very weird race politics. Shall but we shall skip this. He could play, you know what I would have loved to see? He could play the Justice Lord version of Superman from the TV series. That would be something where at least he can play with the role, because I do feel like Zack Snyder's version just doesn't, there's not a lot of room to maneuver. Mm-hmm. There was discussion a while back that he might appear in Fifty Shades of Grey. Uh-oh. And it's like, listen, I know you want interesting roles, but maybe don't go that far. Okay, so... Reviews! That's, that's the news. We, we finished very fast this time. There, I mean, it really was just sort of this collection of casting announcements, the big explosive news with the Marvel No, I think, I think it was simply there was nothing to be really angry about. Usually we have at least one item that makes us shout angrily for like 15 minutes. Well, there was, but then Dan did the okay then. Yes. We're not going to talk about that, but... Um, okay, shall we start yeah. with Zodiac's Star Force? Let's. This is by Kevin Panetta and Polina Ganucho from Dark Horse. This is a four-part miniseries. And this is about magical girls. Again, surprisingly, we're jumping into that genre again, which is if odd. It ter- if it turns no, out No, for like 20 years in American culture, nothing. <laughs> and now in, what is it, Wasn't two months? was Sailor Moon still a thing, though? Well, but it was import. Right. This is... American original. Yes, homegrown homegrown original. Magical girls. Yeah, okay. American. So, what happens in this issue? We have a group of magical girl warriors, but oddly enough, the story starts after they won their big battles. We have all of these mentions of the Dark Astra, something like that. Yeah, this is the Dark Goddess. Yes, that they've defeated in the past, and now they can move on to their normal life, except no. Because the first thing we see during this issue is that one of them is suddenly attacked by a dark, evil monster thing. And so they have to sort of bring the band back together, even though only one of them really wants to do it. And the other three are like, no, 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 no. It was probably just a myth that, you know, monsters just pop up out of nowhere and we should let this go. I'm a little ambivalent about this. I, I too, am. Because... I remember when we talked about Power, power Up. Power up. Mm-hmm. My problem was it was a bit too slow and they've used all of the first issue to power, to power up as were one character. And this just, and this starts with all of them already, you know, the story is in the middle, even towards its end. 
Which I like as a general well, rule because it's more that like their story as Zodiac Star Force there had ended yes. when the story began. Yeah, it's already established, which I like, you know, hit the ground running. But then they spend about eighty percent of the issue backtracking and they're just sitting and talking and talking and sitting during this party. Remember when A, remember when B and I'm What's the point of hitting the ground running if you're about to stop after two steps? That's it. I think the difficulty that I had here was that Really, at first glance, it is power-up without the innovation of the wrong people being chosen. Yeah, it's not a comedy. It's just straight-up magical girls. The problem here is that there's a lack of a real gap. The girls talk about how they were freshmen when they were recruited, but they're all still in high school. They're, when they go, they encounter this monster, right, and they have to get back together, and it's going to be this whole thing. And... It's basically been a year, maybe, since they retired. Maybe two six years. months, two years. Like it doesn't feel like enough time has passed where that could be the hook. Yeah. So right? it's not it's not the formula straight because we've already passed the first season of you know Zodiac Star Force or whatever. But it's not some strange subversion because it's not magical girls ten year after magical girls. Uh, events with the pod. They're still friends most of the time. Right. They still see each other socially, and then. Towards the end, when they decide they need to contact their mentor, then there's they a, do, and she's just sitting there going, "Hi, what's up?" No, Time but to get the word. Then there's an extra twist, which is kind of interesting regarding what it says about the mentor, and maybe there's some darker implications. But I think I missed that. What was that? Uh, the thing about you know in her brain. Oh no, maybe. that that begins where. It, she attacks this monster, and in doing so, something different happens. She supposedly gets like infected. But again, this is a situation where it happens within the first few pages, and you don't know Emma well enough to care that her life is in mortal peril. If this were actually the sixth season of a magical girl show, you would be invested enough in the characters to care what happens to them. But here, there's not enough room because of all this plot to really get to know them. And it is interesting that you brought up Power Up in that context, because, well, yes, Power Up only introduced one character, but you got a pretty good sense of who she was by the end of that of that issue. Yeah. Now, the good things. Uh, Ganwachu, mm-hmm. she has a very good sense for design. Mm. It reminds me a bit, I want to say, of Jamie McKelvey for some reason. There's something about Yeah, that, if he wanted to play, you know, play down his usual tendencies. But, like Jamie McKelvey, there's a bit of weakness to the actual movement. Mm. You know, when when one of the girls hits something physically, there isn't a lot of power to the punch. There's also, I think, the colors are a bit of a distraction sometimes. Really? You have all of these, like, explosions and things going off, and it sort of pulls away from the actual... For example, when they go through their transformation sequence, mm-hmm. you don't actually see them transform. They yeah. join hands, White they out their names, and then the next time you see them in uniform... They're tiny. Like, you don't actually see them in uniform. And the uniforms don't appear to be that different from their... Because they already dressed pretty outlandishly. Eh, I wouldn't say Well, not outlandishly, but... You know, short shorts and Yeah, but the uniforms aren't very spectacular looking, you know. Right. Where most manga artists would say, well, this is the magical transformation that's go wild. This is, you know, regular power suits, whatever. There's just not enough here, I think. We yeah. don't know anything about yeah, the powers. I, we don't know I assume about. it's another one of these things which is better suited for the eventual trade, and it just isn't. 
Mm. It just isn't set right for the issues because they spend all this time talking. Now, if it, if I was just reading it and then, you know, I would go on to the next issue straight ahead and the talking would divulge into action right. or whatever, I like probably wouldn't care. The talking is Panetta's way of setting up the premise, right? The whole point is that they're having these conversations about their past adventures that we don't get to see, but they're already done, right? They already moved Yeah, but on. an but efficient writer would establish this quickly in two, three pages. This exactly. we have how many? How many pages are they in this They keep repeating over and over again, Samaria is dead. We defeated the Dark Goddess. She's dead. We don't have to worry about her. Yeah. It's like over ten pages at the party. That's ridiculous. Yeah. It could have been, this space could have been used better. It really is a miscalculation, I think. And even as a trade, like I'm thinking here, right, our complaint with Power Up was that we needed more room, but that it might look good in trade. Here it's like I get to the end and I don't even feel that there's enough within this issue to at least say, let's move on, let's see what else is out Well, there. I'm kind of interested, again, with the implication of the one thing, because when the mentor is saying you're all in danger, she's say, also saying there's nothing I can do about it, which is not the thing a mentor is supposed to say. The mentor is supposed no, to be. No, mentors usually say that. No, they usually say now you have to go venture on to discover and save yourself via X, Y, and Z. This is basically the mentor saying, "Well, sucks to be you." That seems pretty appropriate. I, for I, I because I assume. I mean, what did Zordon ever do for anybody? Just sitting up there in this tube. All he was day, making good speeches at least. Around. I, good speeches. Wasn't his from opening their, line, okay, this is from, from memory. The, from their point of view, from these characters' point of view. Get me a, a bunch of teenagers with attitude. Yes. How does that help anybody? Well, I don't they know. became the Power Rangers. Are you going to come back to read this as a trade? Mayhaps. I don't think Definitely so. Definitely may. Because part of the problem here might also be the marketing. Because this book was marketed as Magical Girl meets Mean Girls. I don't see any mean girls. There's there. mean girls in page fifteen or so. Yes, but they're not. They appear once and they disappear. They're irrelevant. Yes. And there's some kind of weirdness about like what happened to Alice, and it's like who's Alice? Why should I care? Who like something is going on with these supporting characters? But we don't know these supporting characters. It's it's a very strange and, and miscalculated mm -hmm. issue, I think. Okay. Uh, Speaking of strange and miscalculated. Uh, issue one, we're going to talk about Sherlock Holmes, The 7% Solution, uh, written by David Tipton and Scott Tipton. Actually. Art, art by Ron Joseph, based on the novel by Nicholas Mayer. Yeah. Based on the character created by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Arthur Conan Doyle created Sigmund Freud? I knew it was his fault. <laughs> I knew it was his fault. Okay, now, the right. novel is one of these Recurring, you see them all the time if you're a Sherlock Holmes fan. Sherlock sure. Holmes prestigious. And, and this one's old, right? 1974, I think. Yes, yes. Uh, I, it's pretty good. I've read it and I really, really like it. It's one of my favorites of okay. the Sherlock Holmes variation game. And the big point, the big idea, Meyer and well, Sherlock Holmes meets Sigmund Freud. And the reason for their meeting is because Holmes' cocaine addiction has finally reached a tipping point. It appears in this issue, so I'm feeling free to spoil sure. the idea of the novel. It's a 40-, 50-year-old novel. Spoil away. Uh, the idea is there's a further revision to the Sherlock Holmes canon, Moriarty, Sherlock Holmes' supposed archenemy, which appeared in one story, one short story, and then one novel retroactively. And has turned up every single time. Adaptation, yes. Because people don't understand what they're adapting most of the time. 
No, it's and because Sherlock Holmes needs a nemesis. I understand the need for it. Anyway, the idea that Meyer had was that Moriarty is just some poor guy. He was Holmes' school teacher, and Holmes basically projected this criminal mastermind onto that guy during his delusions because he needed to create an enemy for himself. That's the big idea. That's the big get-go for the novel. The comic, well, it's that. It's just cut into five parts and not very well drawn. Yeah, I think the, the question that you have to ask yourself whenever you're reading a comic book that it is this a is an adaptation. adaptation. It's yeah. a direct adaptation of an existing work. So the first question you need to ask yourself is, does this medium, does the use of comics as a platform justify the adaptation? Because you could just go and read Sherlock Holmes and the 7% Solution, right? What yeah. does this issue offer you that you could not get from Meyer's novel? Nothing. Because I've read the novel and this issue adds absolutely nothing. Maybe the next issue will be better, but I have no intention of finding out. It, it raises an interesting question because I have some objections to the story here. But I can't lay those objections at the feet of Tipton, right? This would end up being the criticism of Nicholas Meyer's novel. Tell me what they are, maybe. Well, okay, so the story in this issue begins with a four-page frame sequence where Watson admits to having fabricated Moriarty, right? And that there's a real story he's going to tell. First of all, I don't like the retcon because, A, it's a bit presumptuous of Meyer's to do that, B, he does it in a really insulting way, where he has Watson says something to the effect of, I can't believe my readers were so stupid as to think that the final solution actually happened. It was a final problem, sorry. I keep saying the final solution when I think Well, the final solution is the Michael Chabon's novel of Sherlock Holmes during World War II. All this post-Doyle Holmes canon. I, I like... Sherlock Holmes, but I'm not that huge of a fan that I know the entire breadth of the Postal. Nobody game. knows the entirety of the Postal collection. It's huge. So it is sort of weird that we have to begin with this preface of just disregard the previous stories because they were all... Because he has a pretty good explanation also in that first part, which is, I didn't write it originally because I didn't want to insult Sherlock Holmes. I didn't want to all the readers, whenever they read these old adventures to think, well, this is this, you know drunk, uh, cocaine-addled maniac. Right. I wanted to preserve his good name. Only now that he's dead, I can sort of let it go. I can reveal the truth. I've seen post-oil works that did something like this a lot better. Like, looking at it, and I don't know if the fault is the text that the Tiptons are using or the way that they have adapted the script. Because obviously this is compressed, right? It's not taking the entire novel and shoving it into one issue, but it's also not representative of, say, 19 or 20 pages of actual text. There's there's a lot going on here. The setup doesn't... It just doesn't appeal to me. You know, the the idea of Sherlock Holmes having a team-up with Sigmund Freud. I just assume not read a Sherlock Holmes well, Sigmund it, Freud team-up. Well, know, it appeals to me on basic interest. The problem is, again, this adds nothing, and I mean, the only reason that you would do this would be for the art, right? I'm thinking here, for example, Steve Niles' adaptation of I Am Legend was actually really good because, yes, he stuck to the script, but it was the art that managed to pull in a lot of extra horror, right? Looking at that image of, you know, the woman standing in the distance, black and white and and sort of ephemeral. There's a whole book 
that came out recently that reprints all the adaptations of Alice in Wonderland in comics. All the, you know, about half a dozen different variations. And you can look at it and see, okay, what the different artists do with this huge setup. But A, the 7% solution isn't Alice in Wonderland. There isn't a lot to do, especially in the first part. It's people sitting and talking in Victorian England. And B, they've chosen Ron Joseph, which he's okay. He's serviceable, but he's not yeah, someone just, that you would watch like you would read this book for. Yeah, I really like the cover. I don't know who did the cover. The cover is a lot better than the art inside. It's just very evocative, very, you know, Holmes-looking, evil, just evil-looking Holmes. Yeah. You know, and then the inside cover is just not up to pair. It's not. And the, the artwork is just sort of... It's serviceable. Yeah, I, mean, I wouldn't just, say that it's bad. Yeah, it just tells the story. It's a bit washy, I think. I mean... But that's the coloring. Really? What reason would we have to recommend this over the novel? I can't think of that. None, really. And mm-hmm. and in terms of direct adaptations, that's sort of the the demarcation. And I think there was stopped. even a movie adaptation. You, you, so if you want an adaptation of the seven percent, probably more than one. I mean, we're talking about uh, you know maybe Nicholas Meyer adapted it himself. Could be. Yeah, he's a good director. I would not be surprised. And. So really, I, I can't recommend this. No. I would say... Even if you're a Holmes completist, you, this is the one you can skip. Even if you are a Holmes completist, just in terms of the price comparison, you could probably pick up Meyer's novel, assuming it's been reprinted, right? Assuming yeah, it's yes. whatever. You could probably get it for, what, seven bucks for a paperback? Six bucks, eight bucks, whatever. This issue costs, what, three dollars? Four. Four. Four, let's say it's six issues, twenty-four dollars. Why would you spend twenty-four dollars... On a mediocre, well, not mediocre, but sort of average. Yes, yes, like it's, it's completely me- plain. It's mediocre, average, plain and no average. Frills, no frills, no frills, no no highlights, nothing. Why would you spend three times as much or four times as much when you could just read the book? Yep. This, you know, it doesn't contribute anything. So yeah, I was interested in seeing what it has to add, but it adds nothing. The answer is nothing. <laughs> okay, and however, yes, if we're talking about books that add things whatever these things may be. Our last number one for this week is Mockingbird number one by Chelsea Kane and Joelle Jones from Marvel. This is a one-shot celebrating 50 years of S.H.I.E.L.D., whatever that means. Is it 50 years since S.H.I.E.L.D.? S.H.I.E.L.D. appeared in comics. How do they know? Oh, never mind. I don't, well, even, Shield I don't want to go into I like, think they first, they first appeared in an Iron Man comic, or maybe in Tales to Astonish. I assume Tales to Astonish. But if we're talking about S.H.I.E.L.D., as in the group that grew out of the Howling Commandos, and technically wouldn't it be Captain America? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't want to know. So these are Silver Age Marvel Watchers, to which I do not venture. Whatever. We are celebrating fifty years. Of, you know what it'll be? It'll be fifty years since David Hasselhoff played Nick Fury. <laughs> oh. That anniversary will be worth celebrating. <laughs> Burgers on the floor for everyone. But in addition to celebrating fifty years of Shield, we're also getting the quote-unquote, thrilling debut of a new character, the Red Widow. So this is basically a one-shot with two separate stories. The first is about Bobby Morse, Mockingbird. Um, Again, a C-lister. I mean, with all the best will in the world, she's the character who I think is probably best defined by the fact that she was dead. Well, best defined by being Hawkeye's wife. And then being dead. Ex-wife, and then dead, and then was it Secret Invasion that brought her back? The scroll yeah. thing? Yeah, I think so. 
In any event, she has been, because of her appearance in the Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. series, she's been more and more prominent in the comics. I think she turned up in Matt Fraction's Hawkeye more than once. Well, I haven't read the whole of that run. She was also in during the Siege of Ogalot. She was part right. of the Avengers. As, as a S.H.I.E.L.D. operative. Yeah. She, she turns up very often. So, the issue begins with a retcon. And it's not a subtle retcon, but it is one that's sort of serviceable. We find out that Bobby actually has two ex-husbands. The one from the comics, which we've known all along, which is Hawkeye. Right. And the one from the show, which is Lance Hunter. Secret agent. Lance How do you Hunter. feel about this retcon? I don't care about it. I mean, it's not I don't care for it. I just Since I don't have any deep emotions about the continuity of Mockingbird, you know, sure, whatever. It's not disaster. Oh, she was married twice instead of once. Exactly. It whatever. does. It does give me sort of a disturbance in the force feeling, only because it's more evidence that they are adapting the comics to resemble the TV show more specifically. Because I can't think of a reason. Also, why... this is technically, I assume, post Secret War, so they have the justification. Is of... it? Well, I assume if you want to or censor, publishing it now, and they hope. I assume, to get a series out of it, or at least more prominent place for Mockingbird as part of the S.H.I.E.L.D. comic book or some future Avengers appearance, we can assume. And again, this is also the debut, like you said, of Red Widow. Right. So this is obviously in the new continuity. So they have the okay. excuse, they have the catch-all excuse, well, in this continuity, she was married twice. Right. No, but I agree with you that this is a sort of retcon you can get away with when you're dealing with a relatively obscure character. It's okay. Whether it matters, like, does she have to have two ex-husbands? Because I'm looking at this particular role, right? Was there anything that Lance Hunter contributed to this story that Clint Barton couldn't have? Uh, a nice gag? I guess, right? Yeah, it's because the there's a gag. gag where she compares her two ex-husbands. She speaks in her sleep and he's like, Clint, and then we have a gag of Hunter being not Clint. Right. Okay, that's fine. Now, the story itself... I'll admit that I'm not quite sure what to make of it, because it reads like an introduction to her character, right? Ostensibly because they want to rebrand her for whatever comes after Secret Wars, but in practical terms, that means that she basically stands and talks to someone she knows is guilty of murder, about her powers and about her she, past. She investigates she... the death of one of her mentors, in this case, a mentor in science, because apparently she, she majored in chemistry? Biochemistry. Did Biochemistry. you know that about her? Again, no, but I'm not familiar with Mockingbird, so <laughs> exactly. I don't know if it's a Ratcon, I don't know if it's part of her character when she when she first was first introduced. Doesn't matter. So what, her mentor as a scientist was murdered, and she comes to investigate the murder alongside her, the son of the murder. The son of the victim. I'm the son of the victim, and we get heavy hinting straight from the get-go that he's to blame, and this whole thing is like a mind game between the two of them are, well, who can get who first. And then it turns out she's psychic. Another oh. weird... Because it's one of those things, it's not a retcon, because they actually refer to the uh, Tales to Astonish issue in which the idea was introduced. So it's one of those ideas that was probably thrown, or, thrown around and then everybody ignored it. Right. Like the third Summer Brothers, because which was mentioned was... once, and then everybody ignored it, and then it came back right. 30 Somebody years later. Um, so, it's sort of weird because I don't understand what they're trying to do. What's, here. what's the like, point of it? She, well, no, I understand that the point of it here is to 
basically lay her out in as basic a way as possible in order for new readers to jump on board with whatever comes the, afterwards. The death of someone she knows is an excuse to talk about sure. that person and therefore explain herself. You know, I... This oh, is my story. This, this scientist is dead. I was a scientist too once. Exactly. Nick, I could have been unless I was... Nick Fury did this thing for me and then all this happened. Okay. I can understand that up to... I was married twice. My credit card number is... <laughs> right. It, it, it really does feel like a primer on Mockingbird. But, but it's not a bad primer. It's the psychic thing that throws me. Because I don't understand what the... Ang- like, when Hawkeye got a solo series, I think people, a lot of people were skeptical. Because Hawkeye is Hawkeye. Fraction makes it work... Made it work, I should say, speaking in the past tense. By stressing how ordinary he is, right? The trick arrows, fine, whatever. But he's not a superhuman. According to this story, like, her psychic abilities or whatever, so she's not, strictly speaking, baseline. Well, we're not sure if it's real or a joke, because then she's playing with it, uh, well, I knew you would think that, so it's like a psychological, maybe it's a psychological trick. She has a scene where she is standing with the victim's son, and can flat out say, like, she has some kind of psychic ability. No. She's saying, I have a psychic ability, you were thinking of this card, and he's, how did you know that? And then towards the end of the of her story, she says again, well, I knew you would think about this card because of your personality type is A, B, and C, right. and later she has a scene again with Lance Hunter so in then bed, what, but what and about she the knows... Artwork? Hmm? The artwork seems to suggest, like, you what? have all of these... There's a page when she's discussing sort of the appearance of these quote-unquote psychic abilities, right? There's this close-up on her eyes... And it seems like, you know, there are these concentric circles coming out of them, and... Well, she know. says, I she feel strange... She fingers to her forehead? Well, she says, I feel strange while she's being poisoned. So, yeah. It, 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 it's yeah. unclear. I think no, I think, I think it's intentionally more. unclear. I think it's intentionally unclear. Does she? Does she not? Does she have them and she's not unaware of it? But I think... If this were a primer, wouldn't that be information you'd want your readers to have? No, because it's a point of curiosity. Is she? Is she not? Like, one of those stories which has a robot in the main role, and you end the first issue, is he really human? Mm-hmm. Is he not? We don't know. So that's okay. I like the fact that it does the done-in-one thing quickly and efficiently. Yeah. And even though it's a it's exposition, exposition, it makes it work. You know, the art makes it work without being just people standing and talking. She's doing stuff while she's thinking to herself. And I guess if you had to do this with a character, it would need to be a character who we don't know well enough to be, you know, it's repetitive. My, it my main problem with it, if this is a primer of Bobby Morse Mockingbird and maybe the future reference point to whoever will write her, it feels a bit too small. This is basically a locked room mystery. And even if you're doing the drag of the superhero universe, you still need something with a bit more scale than... A woman in a morgue. This is a. This isn't even a Law and Order episode. This right. is a lot. This is a one-man theater show. It reminded me a little bit of the first story that Kelly Sue DeConnick did for Captain Marvel, where it was also a situation where her mentor died, mm-hmm. and she wanted to scatter her ashes or beat her record. I don't remember. But in that situation, I think you got more of a feel for the mentor. She's really what's missing here, right? The mentor who was murdered. We don't get any well, sense there of what to Bobby's... Be murdered. Right, but we don't get any sense of Bobby's relationship with her. Like, should she be emotionally affected by this? Because she's not, not really. She never really talks about it. So, I don't know. It's it's. Uh, shall we mention the art? By we Joe should Hill? mention the art. The art's pretty good. Yeah, I, 
we really like Joel Jones from Lady Killer. Mm-hmm. Wait, did she do the art no. or she was just writing it? No, I think she did the art too. Uh, again, it's very good. It's ve- she has a great sense of design. Uh, she knows how to evoke the character right. The responses are great. I There's really a like scene where she's poisoned and like the hallucinogens yeah. in the background really work. It's well. a bit retroish, but in a good way. Like this is how you make an effect and make your book appear unique yeah. while being st- while still being a proper superhero story. So, the second half of this issue has another story. Yeah, uh, the introduction of Marvel's new superstar character, as they hoped you to believe, uh, the, the Red Widow. They used that with Alpha. You remember Alpha from Spider-Man? Well, technically they used it with this Marvel. True. True. Okay. Uh, Red Widow, Ava First Strike. This is another situation That's where... the same creative team, by the way? It is. I think it is. Because uh, Chelsea Kane and Joel Jones are the only writer and author credited mm. in the issue. So I assume it's the, theirs. The art looks very different. Maybe it's just the coloring? Uh, Let's see. Because it could be. Regardless, uh, what I will say is this is another story that could have... It's missing something. And I'm trying to put my finger on what. When you look at it on the whole, there's a lack of originality here because Ava's backstory is basically a rip-off of Lady Bullseye. She saw the original, she's in this case, Natasha. Yeah, right? what we have here is a dual storytelling device. We have inspired, and yeah. she adopts the identity yeah, of the regular. Yeah, these, how many? 12 pages? Mm-hmm. What we have here is a dual storytelling. So we have the regular Black Widow on a mission, and we have the would-be Red Widow going around with her friend to a party. In the and, of New York. Yeah, and discovering that she has some latent, not powers, but sort of like action triggers. She's Jason Bourne. Well, she's Jason Bourne, you know. Suddenly, I know how to kill a person with, with one move. I don't know if it's Jason Bourne specifically, because what this issue... Again, this is where the lack of parody comes in. What this issue seems to be implying is that Ava has some kind of direct connection to Natasha, because it's not just that she can fight, it's that, as we see Natasha they on have the mission, same they move in exactly the same way. And there's a point where Ava doesn't quite understand why she's reacting in a certain way. Well, the backstory of the Black Widow was that she was part of the training program, the Red Room. Yes. Was it? The Red Room. And which had several spies in it. So one would assume that maybe the Red Widow is also a subject of that program, at least from early age, later. Possibly. Because that program, I assume, was discontinued in the Marvel continuity following the Cold War. What's the continuity of the Black Widow? Uh, don't go down that rabbit hole. I think she was in a coma during the Cold War <laughs> and then awoke later. I I could not tell you. That was when she had the short hair, right? Yes. I don't. I cannot tell you. It's strange because again, there's something here that needs to be explained. Oh wait, wait! It's completely different right. writer and artist. Oh, we're, we're terrible. We're really terrible. We really are. Well, I, well, no. In our defense, the credits for this story are pushed. All the way to the bottom of the, of last, the last page. page yeah. so under the, the guy reaching for so help. The so writer so. of uh, Red Widow is Margaret Stoll, and the artist is Nico Leon. Whoops. But, okay, so Stoll and Leon, it's, I think it's actually the same problem that I have with, with Chelsea Kane and Joel Jones, which is, you're setting up this character. If there's a hook here that's meant to suggest that there's something more going on than meets the eye, it's not shown to us as the readers. Like, the characters don't need to know this, but I think the readers do. Is Stoll implying that 
there's some kind of psychic connection between Ava and Natasha, no. and that's why she can. No, fight. I don't. I don't think there's a psychic connection. I because think, I think they imply that whatever the Black Widow saved her from in the past was part of the same training program. But Nico Leon takes great cares to put them in very similar poses at the same time. That seems again like it seems like it would be more no. of a coincidence because we don't even know if the missions are running concurrently. I think it's just the suggestion I, seems to me that it is. I think we have Brooklyn and Hong Kong at the same time. And she's even the the narrative captions, you know, she says five minutes and then Natasha says five minutes. It well, it's, it's a question of whether the no, parallel is I, deliberate I, or not. I think it's deliberate but not to the point that you're reading it. I think it's just a device to show these characters and the whole point of the Red Widow is that she doesn't like Black Widow. She says, You failed me, you failed you failed so many people, so I'm gonna be a superior to show you how it's done properly. She she's sort of like the anti sidekick. She doesn't want to follow the Red Widow's uh, the Black Widow's footsteps, but during because of her nurture, because of the way she was trained, grown, she's sort of forced into that role. Now I think it's interesting. I don't know how you make a whole series out of it. Well, I know how you make a whole series out of it. It's the same it, again, like it's the same dynamic as you have with Lady Bullseye and Bullseye. So presumably, if this is the heroic version, it's just. You know, she's running around, she meets Natasha's friends, whatever, and then you bring Natasha at the end of the first season or first trade or whatever, right? As sort of a parallel. That said... Yeah, but her point is that she rejects Natasha. Right, but... Do you get enough of the she, sense She wants Ava? to reject... Huh? Like, how would you define her as a character? Being that, like, this is the first time you see her. What What qualities would you associate with her that would make you say, let's keep reading? Well, because they try to establish something like they they have a whole spiel about how she's a survivalist, how she has to survive in the streets of New York, but then she had a friend who draws her to a rave, and if you're a street rat, even in New York, you know, you sort of have to be a little more rough around the edges, and this is a bit to teenagers doing their teenage things. Because she's in a home, or she escapes from a home, and she eats in a shelter, but then her friend is like, oh, let's go to a rave. Really? Okay, maybe. And then I don't know enough about teenage runaways. No, but then she's standing like in an alley with energy swords and a white suit, and it's like. Well, she said in uh, her first page she stole equipment from Shield. In the very first page, so that's okay. That's set up. But she no, but it's the fact that she knows how to use them. Well, she doesn't know. I, I again, Jason Bourne. Yeah, so I, 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 you know, I'm I'm intrigued. I I like this idea. I'm not. The first issue alone, you know, it's not even an issue, it's a preview, it's a trailer, doesn't sell me completely, but it has me intrigued enough for this theme on this character, that if there's a proper first issue of the series, I'm going to check it out. Because I like the idea, I think it's unique. A sidekick without a mentor, a sidekick that wants to reject his proper mentor. But she was never trained by Natasha. No. So, like, this is the... This is a problem. It's a problem that the issue doesn't quite manage to overcome, which is Ava's entire connection to Natasha. Her whole connection is that she met her once during a mission. That's it. Yes. It's not that they were trained together. It's not that they had some kind and, of adventure. And they bumped into each other, and that was it. And Natasha probably doesn't even think about it, but for her, this was her big. It's it's like that street fighter right. moment in reverse. You know, for you, the moment Bison raised your village <laughs> was the most, the most yes. important day of your life. For, for me, me, it was, it was Tuesday. Tuesday. So, you know, Black Canary, uh, 
Black Canary, God, I keep confusing names. <laughs> I'm drinking too much. Black Widow saved her. She saved a lot of children. She worked with S.H.I.E.L.D. She was doing it constantly. But for that child, no, this was huge. This was, who is this strange woman saving me from these people that imprisoned me the whole of my life and taking me to this strange country? But then when she finds out that this strange country isn't so wonderful, that she's basically, she's still a prisoner of S.H.I.E.L.D., she's like, oh, you failed me. You, you didn't save me from nothing. You just took me from one prison to another. So I'm gonna, so I have to show you what it's like to actually save people. And I'm gonna right. inverse your name, I'm gonna inverse your identity. I'm not gonna be some spy working for S.H.I.E.L.D. That could work. And I think this is what they're doing here and I like it. If, if that's what they're doing, because I didn't get that sense from the story, but if that's the direction they're going in, I would want to see what S.H.I.E.L.D. does next. Now the issue does end with a reference to a novel uh, by Margaret Soul called Black Widow Forever Red. Presumably, we get more of Ava these, here. These are actual novels. A prose Word, novel. With words and everything. Yes. Marvel novels words aren't, very, paragraphs. aren't very good most of the time, I want to say. No. The Rocket War no, Coon and Root one was pretty good. Uh, I, mean, I didn't read that one. And The Avengers, Everybody Wants to Take the World was okay. I read this really bad trilogy called Chaos Engine. No, but that's one of the old ones, right? Yeah. Because the new ones are a bit more streamlined. Well, they have more vested interests. Now, I'm really curious how the Deadpool novel worked out. I assume it's terrible. Nobody, I haven't heard of it. Because anything. the jokes, uh, the you know, horrible Deadpool jokes in comics work most of the time because they're separated by pictures. If you have, you know, first-person Deadpool for over 200 pages without any pitch, pretty pictures to distract you, that would be destructive. It could be pretty trippy, but... Well, you're assuming that it's first-person. If, if you're doing Deadpool, person, that would be very... Deadpool fought A, B, I mean, C. this being a Deadpool book, it could be fifth-person narration. Who even knows, no, right? So you should, you know, like really if, bizarre. The only way I would ever read a Deadpool novel, if they bring in the guy who did The House of Leaves, Mark C. <laughs> and he would do it all in footnotes. That's probably what it would look like. And the thought doubles would be in footnotes, and they would struggle it with one another and try sure. to kill one another. So, Moxie Danielowski, if you hear this podcast, <laughs> and if you're interested in and if you want to stop writing your, he's doing some huge, forty gigantic, forty novels over thirty years project right now. Good luck to him. So I'm not going to read it. If you want to stop that and do a Deadpool novel, uh, call us. How much effort does the Deadpool yeah. novel? Call us yeah. and we'll call Marvel. Okay, okay, so those were the number ones. Not a super strong showing this week, I have to say. No, I, I like the last one. Better luck. Enjoyed it enough. And we're going to finish with a trade. Not a trade. Uh, An arc. First arc review. The main course review. But this one you will, you would want to pick up in a trade. Yes. Yes, we're going to talk about Gem and the Holograms, number one to six. Written by Kelly Thompson and drawn by Sophie Campbell with colors by Roboto. Mm-hmm. From IDW. From IDW. Uh, now, this is an update of the... It's the, the word classic is not the good word. <laughs> Have you seen... Let me ask you. Like, I really wanted to come to this review having done my homework. So I went to YouTube and I looked up some Jam episodes and I couldn't do it. I'm sorry, dear listeners. Okay, Jam and the Holograms was an 80s cartoon from Hasbro. Boy, was it. <laughs> and it's basically... It's the girly version of G.I. Joe, Transformers, and the like. It's a merchandise thing. It's meant to sell uh, toys and their toy fashion line. Unlike many of the, unlike some of these 80s things, it was pretty much laid dormant for the last 30 years. 
Probably nope. because when you look at like the actual quality, the voice acting is terrible. The plots are really weird. Yeah, it's but like the plots of Transformers trying to murder each yeah, other. Yeah, but the plots of Transformers in the GI Joe cartoons are also pretty terrible. And there's also a very weird inversion with the music. I don't know if you noticed this, but I was watching like two or three episodes, just sort of like grinding my teeth to get through it. And suddenly, I suddenly realized as I'm watching this that Jem's songs are always about like love and boys and flowers and shopping, and the Misfits are always singing about self-confidence and getting what you want no matter the cost. And they're a better sort of role models. Sort of, yeah, they are sort of like the better role models, except that they're sociopaths. So <laughs> no, 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 weird. no, no. You're saying sociopaths. I'm saying they're actively, they're active go-getters. And Jeff and Algrims are a bunch of liars and thieves using super technology to lie to the world and basically holding one of the most important technological developments of their time <laughs> in order to sell records. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing... That's the setup of the show, we should clarify. <laughs> okay. Okay, so uh, it's not one for the history books. Thompson and Campbell made it work. What they're doing is, they take A, they're taking it to modern times, so this is sometimes in the 2000s. And Twitter is the thing. Yes. And <clears throat> here, the Misfits are actually the big band, and they're super popular, and they're having one of these versus competitions. Uh, you know, you'll send videos to our managers and they'll choose the bands to stand up before us right, and maybe you'll get famous. YouTube voting. It's and Jam you know, yeah. the Holograms is a band. Well, I don't know is the name of the band Jam the Holograms? The name of the band is the Holograms, but what happens in this story is that Thompson gives us an origin story that actually makes sense why there's in relation to the premise yeah, of the so show. So Jerrica Benton is the singer songwriter and she's very good at it, but she's incredibly shy. She can't even perform when there's camera crews around, not even for not for Sadie, catatonic stage fright. But apparently, her father was a computer, almost like this Iron Guy. What was he, <laughs> Iron Man, as they say? I've heard of that. <laughs> uh, he, and one of the last things he did before he died, because of course the parents are dead, of course, of course, uh, he created a computer called Synergy, which can project illusions, and he meant to use it as an entertainment system. I am the latest most advanced thing in entertainment. Mm -hmm. And with it, uh, Jerrica can create sort of an outer personality for herself. And so she can appear as Jen, the biggest, hottest, most self-confident star ever. And therefore, she can appear on the stage and win the crowds. Right, she's able to perform because it's basically an alter ego. Now, there are some problems with... Not, I'm talking in the story. Not, not, not talking about my problems with it. There are still things going around. Now, the Misfits, aside from being a very big band, are, at least they're a leader. He's a semi-sociopath who... Semi? She is completely insane. She has some sense of honor, at least. She does. In the last issue. Wow. I mean... But It's also Campbell's art bringing out... Yeah, so when when she feels they're actually being challenged, like, up up until now, the competition was fun and games because they knew they were about to destroy these bands. But when Jeb and the Holograms, when the new band sort of burst out, they're like... We can't let these guys win. We can't let these small times, small town, I don't know who they are, win. And so there's this competition, and there's further complications, because one of, one of the members of the holograms, uh, Kimber, mm-hmm. is in love with one of the members of the Misfit, Stark. Stark. Right. So this is it. So we have personal conflict, we have financial conflicts, and we have music conflict. It needs to be said that I was skeptical of, of oh. Ellie Thompson, but she 
really did an amazing job here. In terms of, I mean, obviously this is not going to be a repeat of the show, but in resisting the tropes of the show as a 1980s cartoon, you know, the sort of obvious uh, cliches, she manages to set up all of these really interesting connections. So, for example, in in the first issue, like right at the beginning, you have this conversation between Kimber and Jerrica where they're talking about why they're in a band, right? Why they're making music. And Kimber says she has three sisters. They are they all have other hobbies, other talents, other things that they want to do. For Kimber, the only thing she has is music. So she is the one who is pushing much more strongly than Jerrica to be in a rock band. And then you have that whole forbidden love with Stormer where you know they're flirting and then they go out on a date, but because... And they don't want their band to know Kimber because she doesn't want to think the band... She's betraying her band and, and Stormer... And Pizzazz throws that And Stormer because her band leader would kill her. Physically, <laughs> she would physically strangle the life out of her. And, and but even then, there's a scene later on where Stormer is complaining about like the misfits wrecking her date, and Pizzazz says, "You know, we did it to distract the media. We don't need the media saying that you are out on a date with our competition. So instead, we made the story about us." Yeah, and that's, that's why sort of that's why I said clever. that's why I said only semi psychopath because she's. Like Star there's Crazy, some logic there's, to what there's, you're saying. There's self-awareness, and when she learns that one of her sisters, her younger sister, uh, Clash, no, she's a fan groupie, yeah, groupie, tag along groupie, is responsible for an accident at the hologram's reversal. She, she's angry, but her the most important thing for her is to keep the band alive. So she don't tell us anything. We don't need to know anything, mm-hmm. and I will destroy you later. But right now. Not a word. Right. There's all of this interpersonal so, drama going on. And so it's a lot really of, good. Yeah, a lot of things that shouldn't work by all rights, because this is Gem and the Hoggins. There's a reason this property has been sleeping for 30 and years. And you don't need to take our word for it. The episodes are on YouTube. See the, yeah. cra- the car crash for yourself. So a lot of things that shouldn't work by all rights work, which is sort of an amazing... I can't believe you did. Yeah. All the cards were against you. And she then, pulls it off. You know, she does something really clever, for example, the figure of the boyfriend, uh, Rio. Rico. Rio. Rio, right. So he comes in here, right? In the show, as far as I could tell, the setup was supposed to be that he was in love with Jerrica. Yes. And also flirting with Jen. Yes. And she was sort of caught between, you know, who does he really love? Is yeah, it's like the, me or my alter ego? It's yes, Superman but, and, and Lois Lane, yes. basically. Here, they did, Thompson does something really, really clever, which is, she flips it around. Rio can't stand Jen. He yeah, thinks she's, of her he as thinks a she's a diva. Exactly, and he re, he's really interested in Jerrica. And so, it puts the same pressure of the dual identity on her, but in a different way. She can't have him either way. No. And I think that's really, really no, clever. No, I think none of it, none of it would work without Campbell's mm. art. The amazing thing about Campbell, about Sophie Campbell, when I think about her art directly, about everything she ever did in her career, she can find the beauty in just about anything. Mm-hmm. Have you seen her Teenage Mutant Ninja, Ninja Turtle work? No, but now she, that you told me it exists, I'm going yeah, to find it. She can make mutant turtles appear not just good, but graceful, like lovely in two mutant nature. It's amazing. Uh, glory, you know. Oh, that design. Yeah, but that design, no, huge, super muscled Amazon. It should have been hideously ugly, but she makes it work. She can make everything appear. Lovely, and it's very important for this series that features 
different types of female bodies and none of, none of them has this, oh, I'm fat, I'm, I'm ugly, I'm standing next to you, skinny body. Yeah, and you know, everybody here is happy about the way they look. Right. And nobody treats the romance between Kimber and uh, Stormer Kimber. as odd because they're lesbians or because Stormer There's is... There's this really cute scene where she's sitting with, with her sisters and they're like, you always tell us when you have a crush on a girl. Why didn't yeah. you tell us this time? Because, you know, so when they... It, it's not even an issue. She Yes, she doesn't make an issue out of things that aren't. That shouldn't mm-hmm. be an issue, but because it's always been written like that, are always issues. There's never if any... If this had happened in the 80s, it would have given half the parents of America coronaries. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like... I mean, it really is taking advantage of it's, it's the a... more sensible... Yeah, more... and the art is a celebration of the female form in a good way, not in, a, in exploitation. Oh, look at these ladies. It's just... Look at them. Look at the variation of women and they all beautiful to me, to the writer, to the artist, and hopefully to the audience. Yeah. Now, this is far from perfect as far as I'm concerned. I have some problems with how big exactly are the misfits? Are they the super huge, mega biggest men in the world? Or are they people that actually can actually go to shopping after signing in a record store? Well, in the street the without being mobbed forever? I think the implication, insofar as what the story itself sets up is that they are famous but they're not the biggest band in the world like they have their own record label mm-hmm. so and this whole contest is like a way for them to find competition because presumably they can't find competition elsewhere but at the same time like again this is one of the challenges of telling a story about rock bands in a medium that doesn't have audio to Campbell's credit she does a Gorgeous, stunning, amazing work when the bands actually sing. Just I like think the Misfits come out performance. better because of the music. It's supposed to be more aggressive. She has more movement to work with. And, it could be. And the holograms are a bit more, you know, peoples. Flowery colors. Yeah. But, but I mean, the, which is okay with feeling, but it doesn't capture completely the movement. But what of it music. does, what it does raise, I think, in terms of your question as to how popular are they, is it seems that we're talking about a very specific type of music or a very specific genre sort of punk is I mean they're using keytars for God's sake so I'm yeah, assuming it's... that it's some kind of pop punk maybe and like in that niche pretty girls make raves maybe could be but then it's it, so I think like within that niche the misfits are presented as like the dominant band but they're not the Rolling Stones. Would yeah. be my guess because Stormer, for example, does manage to sit in a coffee shop and not get noticed until Pizzazz walks in. Okay, so uh, there's something to yeah, that. Yeah, the other problem is with Campbell, and as much as I like her figure work, there's the background. The backgrounds in this series are half of the time are non-existent, literally mm. white backgrounds, and I don't know why. Well, there's some of them are in the cha- you know in the first issue when they're in the machine chamber. Whatever, blank yeah. space. But most of the time, it's just either they're, they're non-existent. The yeah, even either they're non-existent or they're minimal, which is weird because she's such a good artist. And you assume that in the concert you want to capture the feeling of the uniqueness of it all, but no, just keep on stage. You think maybe that's sort of a impromptu gesture to the '80s, where they always had like the same background <laughs> repeating ninety no, times. No. Uh, I will say, I mean, I Campbell's work here is absolutely amazing but there are sort of things that that Short, are weird for example shortcuts you would say no no i wouldn't even say shortcuts i would say sort of design decisions that i can't figure out for example 
Kimber is like her skin tone is bleach white. Like she is chalk white. I assume it's makeup. No. But then she's always in mm-hmm. makeup. Like th- that doesn't make any sense either. And then, you know, when she's standing next to Jerrica, Jerrica is her biological sister, right? The two biological sisters and two adopted sisters. Jerrica is Caucasian. So I don't quite get why Kimber is like, like Windows white, <laughs> you know, like yeah. Windows uh, XP white. I don't quite get that. You know, so that's sort of strange. Also, in terms of hair length, and I realize that this is sort of a silly thing to, to be pointing out, but like, Dizaz can have one panel where, like, overflowing green hair all over the panel, and then she steps onto the concert and she's bald. Yeah. That's weird. She's Tank Girl for some reason. I mean, listen, it's a Tank Girl works perfectly well in this context. But it's the sort of thing where you can forgive it because of the beauty of the artwork, because it looks so good that it's not a sticking point. Like, it's not something that would stop you from reading the book. But every time she makes one of those weird decisions, I'm just like, Kimber, two seconds ago, had a brain that reaches her feet, and then she walks out on stage and she has a buzz cut. Or yeah. like a mohawk or something. And I don't... It's really strange. Like, I don't understand. Is it synergy? Is it? Is it holograms? Is it real? I don't... It's Campbell. It's Campbell. And to be completely honest, it is it is a drawback, but it's such a minor point yeah. of contention. Now, I'm kind of interested in what are they going to do during the next arc, because... Basically, what this arc, these first six issues, set up is the classic TV show formula of there's two bands and their rivals, and mm. apparently the holograms are now a pretty big band following the competition. Well, no, because... They're still the upstarts, but they're no longer, you know, just known by their friends. They're right. now sort of... The, the issue ends... Like the, the, well, the, the, issue, the story issue. arc ends with them having made sort of a very blatant power move to draw attention away from the misfits. And that's a starting now, they have said in the letter pages that the next arc will not be drawn by Sophie Campbell, but that she'll be back oh. in the arc after that. Oh. Which, I'll be honest, it sort of makes sense to me only in the sense that there's no way she could keep up this pace on a monthly basis. Well, the next, look at the, the level next, of detail and yeah. the level of... Well, next month is the annual, and that's by a different arc team. Right, it's a jam issue. Yes. But I am kind of weird because I, I, to be honest, Campbell is about sixty to seventy percent of what makes this work for me. The writing is good, but it's not super stellar. I would read these looking, you know, under any artist. You you can't bring in Joe Joe Average uh, drawing pants and expect me to still read this. Well, I'll tell you what it is. From my perspective, Thompson, the the cleverness of Thompson here is in working well with what she has yeah it she is presented with a very specific set of tools and she manages to do very interesting things with those tools that a lesser writer might not have been able to do like another writer could have just played it straight and then just yeah like even the minor thing here for example most of the 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 holograms use their real names right except for jerica the misfits all use stage names and that's a minor detail. It's like a really small thing. But, but it you tells it, you a lot. Like, yeah, it's, it shows you something. And she's playing into this, right? She's showing all the different levels of these characters. So I feel like the writing is enough for me to say, okay, I know that Sophie Campbell isn't coming back for the next arc. 
She'll be back for the arc after that. But I do still want to see what Thompson is going to do. It won't be as visually spectacular as this arc, but I feel like Thompson demonstrates enough of a... Of, potential. You know, not even potential, because she actually does these things. You know, like she really does manage to make the best out of a pretty, you know, all things considered, a pretty subpar toolbox. And she does a lot with it. And I think, like, if if that is the level of storytelling competence and cleverness and ingenuity that this series is bringing out of her, because I wasn't that impressed with Kelly Thompson before. This is really, I mean, I read Heart in the Box. It didn't really blow me away. I read her, her novel. wasn't great. This is really the first one where I look at it and I say, there's something here. Yeah, and I think it's also a credit to IDW and Hasbro that they're willing to invest in not just this, in stuff like this. When you read most of the IDW uh, TV shows and cartoons, whatever adaptations, which are not Sherlock Holmes, <laughs> <laughs> uh, when you read them, you realize that they, they don't shy away from experimentation and they understand, I think, what's important if you're adapting something, well, the original is already there. You don't have to do it again. So their Transformers is very different from the cartoon or the old comics. And their G.I. Joe is very different from their cartoons and the old comics. And this gem is very different, a different gem. Because, well, you already had old gem. You, you don't have to do the 80s again. The right. question is, what can you do with it right now? And apparently you can do a lot. It's not only that old gem is still there, but it's standards have changed. You know, you can't go watching an animated series from the 1970s and 80s and say, you know, this is the level of quality that you're still willing to put up with. Because the the animation medium as a whole has come a long way since what was in the 70s. Like, I don't know, what was the name of that show with the spaceship Yamato that looked like a giant dog? Starblaze? Starblazers. We're not there anymore, you know? You, you expect better. I think there was a Star Blazers movie in Japan two years ago. Live action. I Live think. action. Oh my god. Did, this, did it still <laughs> look like a giant? I haven't watched it. Speaking of Ilaf de Yamato, oh, you, will have, you will have dozens of anime fans at your neck. I mean, what do anime fans have to complain about? It looks like a giant dong. You can't argue with that. You can't say that, like, no, no, it doesn't. Yes, it does. You Let's wanna... not end our gem discussion with this line. Yes, okay, please. so getting back to gem. Um, I am looking forward to what comes next. I'm on board for however long the series runs. I don't think, with the best will in the world, I don't think Campbell could keep up. On a monthly basis, so if they need rotating teams, I feel like that would I, be okay. In this case, I would rather them doing the the image thing of doing an arc and then waiting at four months, five months, even. It depends. Again, it depends who they will bring. But it, right, the, whoever artists they bring in, these are some huge, you know, monster size Godzilla oh, yeah. size shoes you need to oh, fill yeah. up. So somebody's gonna have to step up and step up their game, whoever that is. Absolutely, and I mean. There are ways also, I'm thinking Thompson could also write scripts that play down to the strengths of the artist. Like, for example, if this arc was all about presentation, right, introduction, explosions of color and light and all of this, and then so if she does like another two or three issues where it's more like drama or whatever, like something more low-key, then maybe you wouldn't necessarily need Sophie Campbell caliber artist to... You know, it could be. I don't know. I, 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 we'll wait and see. And like you said, 
I'm a bit more weird than you, but I'm still there, you know. Um, You're on board? I'm, I'm definitely I think we're on board. Both, we're both going to be uh, very interested in what comes next. So, uh, this was Gemini Holograms, and this was the Smoke Report. I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm John Hedry. Until next time, bon appetit. Bon appetit.